The question that has to be answered is Pax Americana. If you want to have that kind of that post-World War II peace that the U.S. has preserved, that that's going to cost money. Hello and welcome to Global Research Unlocked, where we discuss what's rising from growth industries to rising risks and opportunities in global markets. I'm TJ Thornton, Head of Product Marketing at B of A Global Research, and we're recording this episode on Tuesday, January 16, 2024. A quick look at the global headlines, and it's easy to understand the case for increasing defense spend. But have the various conflicts translated to meaningfully more spending, even outside of munitions and consumables? And with deficits already so high, is growth in defense spend difficult to achieve politically? It's been argued that defense stocks should benefit from multiple expansion given that backdrop, but has that happened and what's left? We'll discuss those questions and a few more with Ron Epstein, who covers U.S. aerospace and defense for B of A Global Research. Thank you, Ron, for joining us today. Good to be here. Thanks. So, Ron, as we sit here today, a U.S. budget agreement seems close, but it's not yet a done deal. Something should be done by the time this podcast is out. In broad terms, how does the budget look for defense spending? Yeah, the, the budget looks actually really quite good. Um, if you look at what's being framed right now, it's $886 billion in baseline defense spending, plus another $105 billion in supplemental spending. So if you add that up, that's $991 billion, just a, a hair under a trillion dollars of defense spending. We were expecting to get to about a trillion dollars of defense spending by 2026. So this is actually ahead of where we, we thought, fiscal year 2026. So this is actually ahead of where we thought we would be at this time. So from a, from a budget perspective, it's actually a, a very robust budget. Okay, and you recently hosted a defense forum with experts from industry, from the U.S. Armed Forces and others. Not surprisingly, it seemed that the view from that forum was that there needs to be even more spend than what we'll get from the 24 budget. Do you think that's realistic, though, in the years ahead? Yeah, I do. I mean, when you think about uh, the years ahead, the question that has to be answered is Pax Americana. If you want to have that kind of that post-World War II peace that the U.S. has preserved, that, that's going to cost money. Uh, right now, the U.S. is spending about 2.8% of GDP on defense. That probably has to rise to somewhere between, call it, 4 to 5% of GDP to allow that to happen. Now, from a political perspective, the question you have to ask is, who is going to be or who wants to be the, the Congress or the administration that lets Pax Americana slide away. Uh, and, and my guess is probably nobody soon. And, and if you want to preserve that, again, you have to get to four to five percent of GDP. And currently we're just under three. OK, and I mentioned um, lots of interesting guests at the at the forum. Anything else from that worth highlighting, do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think probably one of the, the, the more interesting uh, takeaways, and this was you know, uniform across pretty much every speaker. And, and the way I kind of frame it is, you know, everything, everywhere, all at once. There's a sense of urgency uh, in the Department of Defense that we have to, be ed- have to be ready as a nation to act. And that's not being communicated very well to the, to the broad public. That, that how you know, the situation from a national security perspective, globally and regionally, isn't broadly appreciated by the public. And that's something that communication has, has to happen. Um, another, I think, important takeaway was the focus on innovation. 
So kind of frame that one, you know, innovation, innovation, innovation. Um, and and th the point here is, you know, given the speed at which our adversaries are advancing, uh, the experts at the conference highlighted, we have to do that too. Uh, so it's not just a matter of uh, kind of keeping up with the Joneses, but it's keeping ahead of the Joneses. And in and, and, and a matter to do that, you have to innovate much quicker. Got it. Okay. And, you know, you talked about uh, needing to spend probably even more relative to GDP on defense. But of course, um, there's also been a lot of discussion about overall defense spending, or rather overall spending already being too high. How do you respond to, to that? I mean, as, as a percentage of GDP, our deficits have been sort of trending higher. You know, perhaps we should be plateauing that or at least taking it down. And that's difficult if we think about, you know, what could be even more growth in, in defense spend. So is that is that a hurdle or does that spend come out of other areas of the budget? Yeah, typically it would it would have to come from one of two places, either more revenue generation, which would be taxes or from other places in the budget. And and again, it kind of gets back to uh, TJ, this whole concept of do you want to preserve the world that we have or not? And in, 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 in some ways, it's it's OK if you don't. That's just a political decision. And the U.S. position in the world will change. Uh, and then the question becomes, you know, what political regime in the U.S. wants to you know, take that as their legacy? Last weekend, um, long weekend, I was in Providence, Rhode Island. Uh, there were ads from a major submarine builder actually on the uh, boards of a hockey arena uh, looking for employees. Um, and I know you've written about this. In fact, I think it was one of the things that came out of the defense forum, um, submarines specifically. Um, so whether it's for submarines or other areas of defense supply chain, is that a real limiting factor, um, the need for employees? And, and does that prevent us from being able to maybe expand as much as we'd like? Yeah, it, it, it most certainly is. Um, the defense industrial base broadly is challenged right now. Um, the, the submarine industrial base is, is kind of the poster child for it. Uh, and, and, but you could talk about this for you know, military aircraft kind of across the board. Uh, we've also seen it in munitions and weapons. Um, but let's look at submarines as an example. Uh, right now, uh, the, the U.S. is building two major submarine programs. Uh, the Virginia-class submarine, which is replacing the Los Angeles-class. That's a fast attack submarine. And the Columbia-class submarine, which is replacing the... Um, uh, the Ohio-class ballistic missile submarine. The Virginia, uh, the, the rate at which we would like to purchase Virginias right now is about 2.3 per year. That would be, you know, every third year you get an extra submarine. Every third year that extra submarine would go to Australia. Um, something I think we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, you know, demand for U.S. goods overseas. Uh, so we'll be shipping, uh, supposedly we'll be shipping a submarine to uh, Australia every three years. So 2.3 per year. Currently, the industrial base is struggling at 1.3. So we're an entire boat behind where the industrial base wants to be. Now, the orders are happening. So you're seeing a buildup of backlog for submarines. And that's something we haven't seen since you know, the, the Reagan era. Now, part of this is a byproduct of in the, in the, the, the peace dividend after the Berlin Wall fell down. Uh, we stopped building submarines for six years and the industrial base shrunk dramatically. So we're dealing with not just uh, challenges uh, on the labor front, but the entire supply chain. Uh, so you're retooling um, an industrial base to support these new levels of demand. And we're seeing that across the entire defense industrial base. 
everything from space all the way down to undersea. Let's talk a little bit about um, elections, at least presidential election years. I know they've tended to be good for defense stocks. Um, how much outperformance do we tend to see on average for defense stocks in election years? Yeah, so uh, defense stocks tend to do well during presidential election years. Uh, we've looked at this closely. Um, if you go back to 1980 and, and look at how a basket of you know, defense stocks would do, uh, on average, they outperform the S&P by, by over uh, 13%. Now, it turns out if you peel back the onion even more, a lot of that happens in the second half of the election year. So the setup going into this year um, is, from that perspective, uh, pretty, pretty darn good for defense. So you've got a defense budget that's uh, you know, record high, and you're going into an election year. So broadly, for the defense sector, it's a good setup. We did a podcast almost two years ago, uh, soon after the uh, Ukraine war started. And I know one of the things we talked about back then was the case for defense multiples, um, how they seemed low to you. Uh, in absolute terms relative to the S&P. Um, but curious, now that almost two years have elapsed, what have multiples done? And, and you know, you've made a pretty good case for sort of the revenue side, um, but what about the multiples for these defense names going forward? How much room is there to go? Yeah, so it's interesting. When we did that, uh, defense stocks were trading at, at uh, almost a stand, a two standard deviation uh, away from their mean uh, on forward multiples. Uh, and then we saw that recover and they traded about one standard deviation above their mean. And then they gave some of that back. So right now, we're now a, a, a little bit around mean, uh, maybe a, a smidge above that. Um, so on a relative valuation basis, they're, they're pretty, you know, how can I say, reasonably priced at this point. Uh, but the, the, you know, the, the Ukraine war uh, was priced in relatively quickly. And if you go back to two years ago, um, the stocks were priced almost at a level that we hadn't seen since, uh, at least on a forward multiple from the fall of the Berlin Wall. They got really, really inexpensive. Uh, and, and the call at the time was, that's just not sustainable, uh, from, just from a valuation perspective, but broadly from, not that we were calling for a war in the Ukraine, but something would happen somewhere that would, would trigger some you know, focus on national security. So we've mostly focused on the U.S. so far, um, but I did want to talk about um, areas outside of the U.S. Of course, U.S. allies have been providing funding, too, uh, for some of these uh, conflicts, wars that are ongoing. Um, where do we stand in terms of defense budgets for U.S. allies? I know, again, there were some adjustments right after Ukraine. Um, is there much more room to go, um, just like what we you know, potentially could see with the U.S.? Yeah, for sure. Um, after you know, the Ukraine war started, started we saw um, a lot of U.S. allies um, articulate what they wanted to spend on defense. And pretty much across the board, it was increasing defense spending. Uh, the countries on the frontier, if you will, those kind of just backed right up to Russia, uh, were the first to increase defense spending. Uh, but we've seen that trickle through to, to other countries. Uh, broadly, if you look at, at NATO, um, kind of the, you know, the NATO handshake agreement is every country should be spending about 2% of GDP on defense, and not every country was. Um, we've seen more movement towards that. Uh, so, you know, globally, globally we are seeing uh, more spending uh, on defense. Another area that's important is the Pacific Rim. We've got you know, allies in, in the Pacific Rim, you know, Japan, South Korea, um, Australia. Australia is a, a particularly interesting example. 
uh, where they also are um, taking a more aggressive stance with regard to their national security and their spending. Uh, so one, I think, in, important point is this agreement that um, the U.S. has with the U.S., um, uh, the U.K., uh, France, and Australia uh, called the AUKUS agreement. And a part of AUKUS is the U.S. Uh, supplying uh, nuclear submarines to Australia. Um, and that's the first export deal for nuclear submarines ever in, in the history of the U.S. And that's just based on the Australians just trying to bolster their own you know, national security. Well, Ron, thanks very much for, for joining us today. Um, I think in addition to looking at defense stocks, I'll be looking at real estate in Connecticut and Providence <laughs> based on your, your pitch for subs. So I uh, appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you.